All right, the church covenant. Um, so it starts off is uh, in recognition of Christ's purpose for the church. I don't think we're, we're not going to keep saying the whole thing as we as we do it. I promise that would be really long near the end. But in recognition of Christ's purpose for the church and having been saved by God's grace, which uh, Eric talked about last week. And then it says, and baptized in obedience to Christ Jesus' command. And then it moves on. So we're going to look at baptism this evening. And and. The first question that I just want to throw out is, what is baptism? What is baptism? You know, this is something, excuse me, this is something that most of us have seen. Hopefully all of us have been a part of in some form or fashion. Some of us uh, being baptized, some of us baptizing others, you know. So it's, it's a word that we're very familiar with, but what is it? Is it just... Something that we do at church is it, uh, you know, what is what is this what is this baptism thing? Obviously, it's something that we feel is important. It's important enough to put in the beginning of our of our uh, church covenant. Where's going to leave me? <laughs> our church covenant, you know, it's important enough for that. So, what is it? Um, I'll give you kind of a definition that I found, and um, and a little bit of explanation of it too, because it's a Maybe a little bit technical, but um, hopefully this makes sense. If not, you can ask me later. So baptism um, is an ordinance. Uh, it's a Christian rite that's associated with tangible elements. So this is what, I'm, sorry, baptism is an ordinance, or some people call it a sacrament of the church. Okay, so baptism is an ordinance or sacrament of the church. So what is an ordinance? Uh, an ordinance is a Christian rite associated with tangible elements like water or bread and wine um, that is celebrated by the church. All right, so it's it's a Christian rite that is associated with something tangible that we can look and feel and touch, right, that is um, it's celebrated by the church. It's closely related and associated to the word sacrament. So that's why I said ordinance and sacrament, right? Um, so that they're very similar, which uh, that is an outward and visible sign of an inward and invisible grace. Um, in other words, an ordinance is a pic- ordinance is a picture of God's grace, whereas a sacrament, oftentimes, especially in other um, sects and cults of Christianity, uh, the word sacrament can kind of take on this meaning of uh, that one can gain further favor from God, can gain further grace from God by partaking in that uh, sacrament. So therefore, we tend to prefer the term ordinance to help us distinguish from some of those potential misunderstandings. And ordinance really kind of came out of the Reformation uh, because sacraments is a very uh, key part of the Catholic religion. In fact, they have more than we celebrate uh, here in our church, um, they, they celebrate many sacraments. Uh, so they're, and the Catholic Church views them as something that can help you obtain more grace from God when you partake in those things. And so we would differ from that in understanding that the ordinance is something that we partake in, but it doesn't gain us more grace. Rather, it's a picture of the grace that God has already supplied. In that sense, it, it is a grace for us because it gives us an opportunity to remember Christ. All right? And so that's what baptism is. It's an ordinance of the church. Um, many great theologians differ 
on some of these different points about ordinances and, and um, uh, sacraments. My goal this evening is not to try to clear that up. <laughs> um, that would be something that would be a lot of nitpicking. Uh, many of these deeper theological discussions, while based on Scripture, ultimately are logical deductions. A lot of these things are, are logical deductions based on Scriptures, and good men often differ on some of these things, even uh, even when it comes to baptism and the Lord's Supper and things like that. Even, even Reformers differed than uh, most of us probably would believe on some of these things as well. Um, so it's not my desire to, to try to clear that up or, or make some specific um, view as the view of the church. Rather, my goal is to teach us simply what Scripture says. Because at the end of the day, that's our job, right? Our job is not necessarily to take the church down a specific theological thought process. It's to take the church back to Scripture and say, what does Scripture say about this topic, or what does scripture say in this passage, and for us to be faithful to give the word of God. So that is the goal this evening as we look at this topic of baptism, not to take us down a specific line of thought or a specific theological bent, but simply understand what does scripture have to say about baptism. So at LHBC we recognize two ordinances. Um, and the reason we recognize those two ordinances is because those are the only two ordinances that Christ specifically ordained. What are they? Baptism and communion, right? Baptism and the Lord's Supper, right? Those are the two that we would recognize. Um, so this evening, we're actually going to discuss one of them and partake in the other. Um, that was, it's always interesting to me how God plans these things out. You know, because actually, I, originally, I think I was supposed to preach next, the week before, and then Andy needed two weeks, you know, and, and the Lord worked it out to where we're, we're dealing with both ordinances tonight. We're not preaching on the same one, though. Don't worry. We won't be here forever, hopefully. <laughs> so when I, when I say the word baptism, what comes to mind? You know, when I talk about baptism, something probably pops in your head. Maybe it's, um, maybe it's your baptism. What, what happened uh, when you came forward and, and whether you were out at the lake, um, some of our younger people maybe out at the lake, maybe out in the pool, <laughs> down at the, uh, the hotel not that long ago. Uh, we've, had, we've had several different baptisms in different places. Um, <clears throat> but everybody probably has something different that comes to mind when you talk about baptism. Maybe uh, when I say the word baptism, you think of a child. And a, and a parent standing around uh, an altar and, you know, there's water being dropped or water being rubbed or, you know, lots of different ways <laughs> they like to do it. Um, so maybe that's what pops in your head when you think of baptism. Uh, baptism for me, there, there's one very specific uh, thing that pops into my head, and it's not my own baptism, and it's not my children's baptism. It's um, baptism class. In seminary. I don't know. Did you guys do this? Okay. So, when, where we went to seminary, uh, we had a class. It was like one day. And you would go and they'd fill the baptismal, which thankfully was heated. You know, so it was, it was nice and warm. But we had like six guys in my class. And so, we're all in this baptismal. And it's, it's big enough. It helped. You know, where there's plenty of room. And, of course, we're practicing 
how to baptize people, right? Because it's kind of it's practical. You're, you're going to need to do this, you know. And of course, they were teaching us a specific way to baptize. That was, you know, the way that they did it. And, and we'll kind of talk about that a little bit later this evening. But, uh, but we, we had to practice baptizing each other. And of course, when it was my turn, guess who I got? I got the biggest guy in the class to be the guy that I was going to baptize. Um, because, and, and the, <laughs> the teacher in charge of the class was like, this will be really good practice because there's always going to be that person that you're just not sure if you're going to be able to get them back up out of the water. <laughs> so thankfully, water creates a lot of buoyancy and we're able to, uh, to do that. So um, hopefully, you know, your, your memories of baptism are not quite as uh, crazy as mine are. But that's, that's oftentimes what pops in my head when I think about baptism. Of course, obviously, uh, I think about my baptism, both of them, <laughs> and, uh, and my children's and others who I've been able to have the privilege of baptizing. But hopefully yours is, is uh, much sweeter than that. So baptism is an ordinance um, or an observance, and it's not a means or a part of salvation. Um, Pastor Eric reminded us last week that um, we have the five solas of the Reformation, right? We believe um, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That it's revealed through scripture alone. And it's for the glory of God alone. Right? That's the five solas of the Reformation. We believe that firmly. That's what scripture teaches. And, and so we know that no act of man can bring about salvation. There's nothing that we can do to earn salvation so that we do not have a reason to boast. That was part of what Pastor Eric was talking about last week. Only our faith in Christ and his finished work is what saves us. So we know that there is nothing about baptism that has anything to do with us be becoming saved. It has no salvific power. So as we dig into baptism, uh, we need to answer a few questions about it. And, and as we do that, we'll kind of talk through how we, as LHBC, attempt to observe this ordinance as biblically as possible. So the first question that I want to ask about baptism um, is, how do we baptize? How do we baptize? I didn't put this as a question. Oh, well. How we baptize, right? So let's look at the Bible, or let's look at the word first. The word in Greek, anybody know what it is? Baptizo, right? Um, I think it's more like a sound. Yeah, thank you. All right, my wife's trying to give me Greek coaching lessons, uh, speaking lessons. So the word baptizo, I'm going to say it the American way, all right? <laughs> um, that's the Greek word. Now, obviously, that sounds very familiar, does it not? Most of the time, we hear the word baptize, right? It's really not a translation. It's more of a transliteration, right? We're taking a word that we really didn't have a great word for, and we're basically using the same sounds to create a word, and that's called a transliteration, right? Doing it kind of letter by letter, taking the same word. So when we read the word baptize in Scripture, many times it's not really a translation, it's more of a transliteration. We're literally just saying the word because we don't have a word for it, uh, for what's going on in that context. 
Or at least it might sound weird if you do. <laughs> so what does baptizo mean? All right, what does baptizo mean? It means lots of different things. Um, it's, it's interesting. One of the great things about living in our time is we are able to see how Greek words were used, not just in scripture, but how they're used in other literature. And that's very helpful for us because we can see the context of how they're used and translated in other literature to help us translate things better in the New Testament. So that's a good thing, all right? Now, we have uh, lots of other Greek texts that use the word baptizo. All right, so we're going to talk about the way that it's used in Scripture and outside of Scripture to help us understand a lot of the, the ways that baptizo is used. Now, if you think about this, we use we do the same thing, do we not? We use words in English um, that don't always necessarily mean the same thing every time we use them. Like the word love, right? If I say I love my wife, that's different, hopefully, than if I say I love the Chiefs, right? There's a, there's a different connotation there, right? There's a different a context for that conversation. So you, you, when I say I love the Chiefs, you know that it's not the same as when I say I love my wife. My, my son doesn't believe me, I think. Uh, so, there was a pathetic comment. Yeah, there was a pathetic, yeah, it's great. Uh, so we do the same thing. We use a word multiple ways in our language. All right, and, but we understand it based on context, right? So baptizo is used in various different ways. Um, most commonly, it's used uh, like this, to dip, to plunge, to be drowned, to sink or disable a ship, to be drenched, to dip oneself, or dipping something in water, immersion, you're probably familiar with that word, uh, dipping to dye something, a different color, um, and then baptize <laughs> is our definition. Um, so those are kind of generally throughout, you know, texts of Greek literature. Those, those are how those are used. Um, there's another way that it's used, and that is to flood or overwhelm. To flood or overwhelm. And we actually see that being used in a couple passages in the New Testament. All right, in Matthew chapter, or Mark chapter 10, verses 37 through 40, uh, Christ is speaking, he says, And they said to him, Grant us to sit on, this is actually James and John, Grant us to sit, one on your right hand and one on your left, to, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know your asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am being baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. What's he talking about here? He's talking about his death. He's, he's talking about everything that he's about to go through for them. And he says, you are gonna, you're going to suffer the same thing. You're going to suffer persecution. You're going to suffer martyrdom. From my name. You, you will be able to do that, and you are going to do that. But he's using that word baptizo, baptize, in, in this sense of an overwhelming uh, reality or force. All right? And he does it again in verse uh, Luke chapter 12, verses 49 through 53. He says, I came to cast fire on the earth, 
and with that in wood that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. And, and just some more context here. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided against three, two and two against three. Then will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And it continues on. So there's, there's this overwhelming reality that's going to happen to Christ, this pain and suffering that he's going to have to bear. And in this passage, he's talking about as something that he, it's like he almost wants to get it over with, Right? He says, I can't wait till it's, till it's done, till it is accomplished. So that's another way that this word baptize or baptizo is, um, is given to us in Scripture, used in Scripture. Another way is for ceremonial washing. You know, the Jews had all these different uh, ceremonial things that they had to do. One of them was washing uh, at different times for different reasons, but we have an example of this in Luke chapter 11, verses 37 through 39. It says, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash, or baptizo, or congregation of it, conjugation of it, before dinner. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisee, you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. So here we have this ritual washing that the Pharisee expected Jesus to participate in, and he didn't. And of course, Jesus is talking about how they wash the outside. They're real good at that ceremonial washing, but on the inside, they're wasting away, right? So this word baptizo is used many different times, many different ways, in scripture. But the way that is most commonly used is in what we think of when we think of baptism, right? We think of uh, someone being baptized for a specific purpose. Um, now, we ask the question, how, how do we baptize, right? So looking at all these things about the word, the Greek word, how it's used, how scripture uses it, how do we baptize? Well, we baptize by immersion, <laughs> all right? That is the most common thing that we see in scripture. It's the most common usage, uh, is this concept of baptized, being put down into water and bring, bring, being brought back up out of water, all right? We call that immersion, right? So we believe that we should be baptizing by immersion. This is not the only reason, we'll get to that later, all right? There's, there's more to come. We also baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Anybody have any idea why we would do that? Right, that's what Christ commanded us, right? He said, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we baptize by immersion, and we baptize speaking uh, in the names of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that's high level how we baptize. All right, so the next point or question is, who do we baptize? Who do we baptize? Every instance of individuals 
in Scripture that are baptized shows that they are baptized after believing in Jesus Christ. Every single one. And just to belabor the point, we're going to read a lot of them. All right? So follow along with me. Because I want you to I want you to actually hear this. I want you to see this. All right? This is not just me coming up here and saying, I read in a book someplace that all the people that got baptized, I went through the New Testament. And I think I found all of them. <laughs> and every single one that I found, they were saved and then baptized. All right? And this is important. So Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 10, actually we have John the Baptist first, uh, which I think is interesting. I, I, and I wanted, I wanted to bring him out for, for a purpose here. So John the Baptist baptized, obviously not for salvation, but for another purpose. What, what, what was John the Baptist baptizing them for? Anybody know? Repentance of sins, right? Yeah, just repentance. So in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who spoke, uh, who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were being baptized by him in the river, river Jordan, confessing their sins. All right, so how did this work? They were coming, they were confessing their sins, and when they confessed their sins, he would baptize them. All right, now, again, where, where was he baptizing them? Down in the River Jordan, all right? They had pots back then. You know, he could have, he could have done this number if he needed to, <laughs> you know? But uh, they were down in the water. Uh, this is a very common thing you'll see. In these baptisms, they go down into the water to be baptized. But here's something interesting. If you continue on that passage, it says, But when he, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Eat every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What's his argument against the Pharisees and the Sadducees? He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. They weren't getting baptized. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were not getting baptized. Why? Because they didn't need repentance. Right? They didn't need to repent because Abraham was their father. They had everything figured out. They were good to go. They didn't need this baptism. They didn't need to, to show a sign of repentance. Rather, they had it all good. And John says, no, you are a brood of vipers. You are worthless because you do not show signs of repentance. So the baptism with John was a baptism after as a sign of repentance. All right? So let's look at the New Testament in the early church. <clears throat> Acts chapter 2, verse 41, after uh, Peter has just given this great sermon, it says in verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized. Right? Those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Acts 8, 12 through 13. But when they believed Philip 
As he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. We'll come back to Simon here in a little bit. Acts chapter 8, verses 34 through 38. And the eunuch, this is the Ethiopian eunuch, when Philip uh, got up onto the um, chariot with him. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? Notice that question. What prevents me from being baptized? And what does Philip say? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Um, there's another passage I think I missed, <laughs> where Philip tells him that he needs to believe. Um, but he, So what has happened? He's shared with them the gospel, right? He shared with them the gospel. The, the Ethiopian eunuch believes it, and they come to a place where he can be baptized. He's like, why not? What, what keeps me from doing this? Right? And so we have belief before baptism. Acts 9, 17 through 19. So Ananias departed and entered the house. This is Ananias coming to Paul, or Saul at the moment. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he arose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. Obviously, we know Saul's conversion was on the road to Damascus, right? Where he saw the Lord bright and shining and it blinded him and he heard the Lord and he spoke with the Lord and he realized who it was that he had been fighting against. And he submitted to that. It says earlier in that passage that he had been praying. All right, so there was a belief in who Jesus was before baptism. Acts 10, 44 through 48. While Peter was still saying these things, this is when he went to... Um, Cornelius, thank you. I knew it started with C. It wasn't coming. Uh, when he went to Cornelius, when, when Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised, which would be the Jews, who had come with Peter, were amazed, because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So they had been saved. They had received the Holy Spirit already. And then they were baptized. It says in verse 48, He commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Acts 16, 14 through 15. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purples, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So God opened up her heart to understand and believe. And then she was baptized. We're almost done. Acts 16, 30-34. Then he brought them out. This is the Philippian jailer. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Be baptized. 
No. Right? That's not what they said. What they say? Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. The same applies to both. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And they took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Acts 18, 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Over and over and over and over and over again, the clear description is that they believed and were baptized. Baptism doesn't save. There's no part in it. They are believed and baptized. Baptized. So who do we baptize? We baptize those who have a clear testimony of faith in Christ. We baptize those who have a clear testimony of faith in Christ. They understand who Christ is, what he has done, who they are in the sight of God, and how Jesus Christ has saved them. And they not only just understand it, but they believe it. And they desire to follow him. There's, there's a cost counting involved in this desire to be baptized. The early church knew that going with this new religion meant that there was going to be hardship and problems. In fact, Jesus even told them that that would happen back in Matthew 10, verses 16 through 25. He says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brothers will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and the children will rise against parents and have, put, and have them put to death. And you will be hated, for, hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he be like his teacher, and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? They knew in their culture, in their religion, that following this gospel was going to mean persecution. That going down and getting baptized was going to be was going to mean persecution. You know, we look at it today when we get baptized, you know, we have this process of immersion that we baptize and you come to church, it's pre-planned, right? We know you're going to get baptized on this date, and you're going to come in, and you bring in your extra clothes, and your towel, you know, and you get everything, and then whoever's baptizing you brings in their extra clothes, and they get up there, and they baptize you, and everybody gets dressed back in the dry clothes, and you go about your day. That's not how it worked back then. Oftentimes, they were out in the river, 
out in the fields. And they were coming and they were listening. They were, their hearts were being pricked and they were believing. And immediately they were being baptized. We're going to talk about that in a second. But they were being baptized by immersion, head to toe, drenched, wet clothes. Hey, man, what happened to you? Did you fall in a river? No, I got baptized. Baptized? For what? Why would you do that? And it was an opportunity for them to share their faith. And, and we've kind of lost that a little bit in our culture. You know, we don't, we don't understand what others are going to perceive because we do that in this, in this little area where no one sees but the church that comes into the building. I'm not saying that we have to change that necessarily, but we need to understand that the people who are being baptized were people who were saved. They knew the cost that they were going to have to pay. So they were believers who had counted the cost. Man, there's a lot left. Okay. Bear with me, we're going to go quickly. What about babies? Baptizing babies. Pedo baptism. Um, I'll just say this. Without going into detail about what the beliefs are, there is no scripture that indicates any baby was ever baptized. A baby cannot give a confession of faith. All right? Every baptism in scripture is someone who had believed. Um, there just is not any clear scriptural support. There's scriptures that are a little difficult to understand that are twisted to uh, try to support that, but paedo-baptism is not uh, biblical. So if you want to learn more, ask me later. What about young believers? What about kids? When they, they come and we baptize kids, right? How, do, how in the world do we do that? I'll, I'll be honest with you, that's hard. That's hard as elders to baptize a child because, you know, we can't read their mind. We, we don't know their heart. We don't know for sure if they got saved, right? All we can do is test their understanding and their conviction and their belief. That's all we can do. And we try to do that to the best of our ability. We try to understand what they understand, what they believe, and make sure that it matches the scripture. And if they can give a clear testimony of their saving faith, there's nothing in scripture that says they should not be baptized. In fact, everything in scripture says they should be baptized. And in fact, it says that they should be baptized quickly. When do we baptize? Every instance in scripture that mentions baptism is immediately following salvation. The early church views, viewed baptism not as a part of salvation, but so intertwined with salvation that it was just immediate. You believe, let's get baptized. Remember that passage with Cornelius? What did, what did Peter say? He said, you know, where's the water? <laughs> right? Where's the water for these people to be baptized? And it says that he commanded them to be baptized. And yet, in our church, in our day, how often do we wait Weeks, months, 
years even, before we get baptized or before we're maybe willing to let a child follow in, in baptism. The, the, really the thing that we should be doing is baptizing as soon as possible. If there's a clear statement of faith, why not? Why not? Baptize as, as quickly as we can. So the last question is, why do we baptize? And I'll try to go through this very quickly um, for sake of time. Why do we baptize? First of all, it's a command, right? It's right there in our church covenant. It says, because of Jesus' command, right? We baptize because in obedience to Christ's command. All right, so where does that command? Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Notice, making the disciples first, right? Then baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So it's a command by Christ. So it's something that we do in obedience to him. In fact, uh, many people call it the first step of obedience, right? Because that's what Christ has commanded. He's commanded us to repent and believe and then be, be baptized. That's the, that's the process. That's the flow that we should be going through, right? So it is, it is an act of obedience to Jesus Christ's command. But secondarily, it's an outward proclamation of our belief. It's an outward proclamation of our belief. It's us coming and saying, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe what the scripture says about his finished work, who he is and what he has done. And I repent, I turn away from following after myself and I follow, I want to follow him. That's repent and belief. That's salvation. And so it's an outward proclamation of that. Yes, they can get up and say, I, I believe, but especially in the culture, remember the culture, it was one thing to say, I believe, and another thing to go through that process publicly being baptized. Because now you're wearing it. Now you're wearing it. You know, it's not just a statement, but it's a reality. It's you saying, I really believe, I really and following after Jesus Christ. For sake of time, I won't read it, but Matthew chapter 10, verses 26 through 33, and Mark 8, 38, 34 through 38, uh, are a couple of passages where Christ basically says, if you're not willing to claim me, then I'm not willing to claim you. That's the Welch abbreviation version. <laughs> Go read it, all right? Um, he basically says, if you're not willing to confess me before men, then I will not confess you to my Father. So baptism is how we do that. It's a way that we come before others and we say, I believe in Jesus Christ. I'm following after him. But thirdly, and finally getting to our passage this evening, <laughs> in the next five minutes, Romans chapter 6. Baptism is a command, it's a, it's a picture, but I think even more importantly, and this is the thing really that has just kind of jumped out at me lately, is that baptism is a reminder of our union in Christ. 
Baptism is a reminder of our union in Christ. As we read here in chapter 6, he starts off saying, are, you, are we going to keep sinning so that grace can abound, so that, so that this great grace that God has given us can just do more for us? You know, are we, are we just going to treat it so flippantly that we just keep sinning so that grace can be more gracious? More gracious you know? Um, and he says, God forbid, or by no means, you know, how can we who are dead, who have died, still sin, die to sin, still live in it? And then verse 3 says something interesting. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? What does that word, what does that phrase baptized into Christ Jesus mean? Galatians 3, 27 through 29 uses this as well. It says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is, there, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So to put on Christ is to become a part of the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13 says this, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all are made to drink of one spirit. The process of salvation is, is not the thing that adds us to the body of Christ. The process of salvation is what does add us to the body of Christ, not baptism. All right, we made that very clear early on. There's nothing that we can do works-wise to become saved. So when Paul uses this, this picture, he's not saying that baptism is what puts us into the body of Christ, but baptism is a picture of what the Holy Spirit has done when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He has made us a part of the body of Christ. We are saved. So baptism then becomes a reminder for us of what Christ has done for us. So I want to look at three truths, very three truths, very quickly that baptism reminds us of uh, in this passage here in Romans chapter six. We've already read it, so we'll, we'll just do a kind of a cursory view. Um, in verses five through seven, baptism reminds us that Christ's death breaks our bondage to sin. Baptism reminds us that Christ's death breaks our bondage to sin. What does it say there? It says, do you not know that we've been baptized into Christ Jesus, baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Verses 5 through, I'm sorry, let's skip down. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united to him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. The one who has died has been set free from sin. We did not physically die, but because of Christ, our union with him when he died spiritually, we died to sin. He died for sin, and we died to sin. He died on our behalf. 
as our sacrifice, but because of faith in Jesus Christ and his work, we are united with him in that death. And he died, giving us freedom from death, freedom from sin. Not only is is it a reminder of Christ's death breaking our bondage to sin, but baptism reminds us that Christ's resurrection gives us new life, right? It says that we're unified in Christ's death. It says that we're buried with him, and we're also unified in his resurrection. To what? To new life, right? We're resurrected and given opportunity to live a new life. Verse, nine, verse 10 says, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and what? Alive to God in Christ Jesus. We have new life. Ephesians 2, Eric talked about it last week, right? That we were dead in our trespasses and sin, lifeless spiritually. But because of what Jesus Christ has done, we are united with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. And his resurrection gives us new spiritual life. That's what baptism is a picture of. It's a picture of that union in his death, in his burial, in his resurrection. It's a picture to remind us that we are free from the bondage of sin. It's a picture to remind us that we uh, have been given new life. And thirdly, it's it's a picture to remind us that Christ's work gives us the power to submit to God. Think about that. Christ's work gives us the power to submit to God. Before, we didn't desire to submit to God. We had no desire to to follow after God. We were his enemies. But because of what Jesus Christ has done, it gives us the power to submit to him, the grace to submit to him. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Paul's talking to us as if we have a choice. As if we have a choice. Because of what Christ has done, we have the power to obey. We have the power to no longer um, let sin reign in our mortal bodies. He continues on that we are to not, not to give our members over as instruments to unrighteousness, but rather to present them to God because we've been brought from death to life through Christ. We have the power through the Holy Spirit to choose to obey God, to choose to submit to him. For sin will not have dominion over you since you are not under the law, but are under grace. That's what baptism does. It reminds us of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us on our behalf. It reminds us of the union that we have with him. And I'll be honest with you, there's been many, many times where I've sat in a pew or even participated in a baptism and my mind was on the function and the process and the, the ritual of baptism. When my mind should be on everything that it pictures, my union with Jesus Christ and the reminder that it's that because of him, I no longer am under the bondage of sin. I no longer, I, I can now live a new life and I can now have the power to submit to God. That's why typically you'll hear this phrase, 
when we baptize, we'll say something like, I baptize you, whoever the name is, um, and we'll say, I baptize you in the name of uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? And then what do we do? As we take them down, we say, buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection to walk in newness of life. Those are not just words of tradition. Those are not just words that we were taught to say so that we did it the right way. Those are words that should be reminding us of the picture that baptism gives. It is a reminder of our union in Christ. And honestly, that's what we celebrate this evening. We celebrate our union in Christ. We celebrate the work that he has done for us. But it's not just when we take communion. It's every time we see a baptism. It's not just that person's proclamation of their faith, but it's also a reminder to us, once again, of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Is that how we view baptism? Is it just something that we do? Is it just an ordinance of the church? Or does it mean more? Hopefully, it means more. Understanding why we baptize. In obedience to Christ as a picture of his finished work on our behalf, as clearly defined in Scripture, helps us to determine those other ancillary issues. Right? It helps us to determine who we baptize. It helps us determine, to determine when we baptize and how we baptize. When we understand that picture that baptism represents, it leads us to proper procedure. Baptism is a beautiful thing. The title of the message this evening, I don't know if I even said it, was the beauty of baptism. It's not just a wet process. There's a beauty and a richness and a depth to it that we so often don't even think about. But yet that's exactly what Paul is reminding us here in Romans chapter 6. Let's pray and then, uh, men, if you'll come forward. After that, we'll continue on with our communion time. Father, we thank you for Christ. Lord, we thank you for baptism. We thank you that it's not just a ritual. It's not just uh, pomp and circumstance. It's not just something that we do um, because there's a command and we don't really get it, Lord. We thank you that there is a purpose behind it, that it's a picture of what you have done for us and not just this this thing that is far off of, of Christ dying on the cross and, and being buried and, and rising again, but it's a picture of our union with you in that. It's, it's real and it's relational. And I know, Lord, even for myself, I've often missed that. Lord, I pray that as we look to the future, as we think of baptisms that will occur in the days ahead, Lord, I pray that uh, that you would just again remind us, open our eyes to this reality of this picture that you give us in baptism of the union that we have in Christ, of the freedom from sin that we have in Christ, of the new life that we have in Christ to walk and the power that we have to live in a way that honors and glorifies you. Lord, I pray that that would be the way that we live. I pray that would be our response. 
And I pray that you would be glorified in it. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.